0: job. Um, before we sit down students, we have to make sure that there's enough room for a fire, for a fire, fire aisle. So can't sit in the aisle there. Make sure there's, you sit back far enough that I, I don't really understand the fire aisle thing because if there was a fire in five seconds, we'd all be in the aisle, <laughs> but it is the code. So we have to, you guys need to sit back a little bit, please. So, I guess it's just so that people could run out while you're trying to get up. (laughs) Whatever. (laughs) May you be the first out. They always ask you in a plane, if you sit in the exit aisle, will you help in case of a crash? And I always say, yes, I will. But I two problems. One, I'm allergic to fire. And two, I'll go get us help and get, be back. So can you guys move back just a little bit to make more of an aisle there? Thank you very much. I guess that's a fire aisle right there. It's totally equal. We, we gave her a good try. It's more like a fire tunnel. When you tell our students, "Fire aisle, it, fire tunnel.) Very difficult. There, Did you feel anything when you're walking through there? Now, in the case of a fire, did you feel like you could get through there before they could get up? Because that's the key. Okay, good. (laughs) Well, well, how many, I I didn't get to see your hands, how many are here for the leader's advance? Wow, that's awesome. I don't know where our other people are. (laughs) Well, we're going to have a good time. I want to talk to you about creating tipping points tonight. And uh, I want to read you something my son Jason wrote last night and sent to me, and it's, it's really good. Take a step back and view your life through the perspective of eternity. Each decision that you make etches a lasting inscription in the walls of history. Choices that are made will become the fruit of the falling generations. This is a beautiful part of being alive. The blood that was shed in the, on the battlefield of decision has now become the inheritance of, of the authority in your family lineage. There will come a day of justice when history will be revealed to each person. In that moment, the fruit of your life will be unveiled right before your eyes. On that day, there will be a great celebration in the heavens for the man who has weathered the many storms of life, while planting a harvest for a generation that he's now able to see. His reward will be everlasting. He will hear the, the Father's words, Well done, good and faithful servant. Um. Well done, good and faithful servant. The little that has been given to you has been multiplied through your hands. There is a conviction that is meant to weigh heavy upon each person who calls himself a believer. We live with an awareness that life is meant to be sown into the destiny of people that I'll never see. This conviction drives the mighty to pursue the impossible, the strong to to brave the many storms. There is no escaping the thundering storms of a um, opposition. for we are the ones who have been commissioned to calm each of them. Each believer is called to take the test of life and turn them into a testimony. We've been launched into the darkest places of the earth, transforming them into the light of the world. We are the ones who see an army, to, who see an army in the dry bones. It is us who can win a battle with a jar and a torch. <clears throat> who you are should not be decided by the, our economy, persuaded by popular opinion, or formed through the media's bent. We are counterculture by nature. We are predestined from the womb, set apart from the beginning. This life that, we've, that we have chosen can only be navigated with a renewed mind. The old man screams too much when faced with the impossible, and the flesh is a poor decision maker. Have you decided who you'll be? Do you know what, you, what you'll leave behind? With your words, you create worlds. With your prayers, you release inheritance. The balance between life and death has been designed to rest on your, in your hands. Like many who have gone before you, have many. You, we now have the opportunity to create change in the world around us. How you choose to live today is a choice for eternity. He sent me that last night. I thought that was pretty cool. How many have read the book Tipping Point? The Tipping Point. It's a really good book. It's not a Christian book, but it is a really good book. And um, there's a, there's a. It was written by Malcolm Gladwell. I read it a while ago, so some of my uh, recollection of the statistics are probably not exactly accurate, but the concepts will be. Um, he talks about 1964 in Queens, New York. There was a woman named Katie, uh, I think her name's Geetso, and she was chased by an assailant and killed, and the incident lasted more than a half an hour while 38 neighbors looked on. Let's um, really... Interesting, the book kind of opens with this statement about this woman who she's she's in this neighborhood and uh, this man chases her down over a period of about 32 minutes and he murders her, brutally murders her in front of 38 neighbors. Well, 38 neighbors looked on, not one of them called the police. And so um, that really started to create in him a um, tension like, why did nobody call the police? Why did 38 people watch this young woman get murdered and not, not a single person called the police? And so he started doing, they started doing some questioning. They questioned all 38 of those people and they started doing some surveys with other similar uh, things that had happened in history where where some terrible uh, crime had been committed in the, in the view of, uh, w- of many witnesses without anybody so much as calling the police. And what they found is this. They found that, uh, and, I, and now, now I'm going to really mess up the statistics because I, I wish I would have written them down, but I haven't. I didn't. They, but they found that if one person views, uh, views a crime, the possibility that they'll phone the police is like, it's something like 98%. If two people view a crime, it drops dramatically down to like 70%. If three people view crime, there's only a 50% chance that anyone will call it in at all. And, and if a crowd views a crime, the chances that anyone will call it in drop to like 3%. And what, what, he, came, what he came to in, in that book is that, that crowds do not create tipping points, but that individuals create tipping points. And what I like about that is that's the Bible. That's true in history. You know, we come, we come from, we read the Bible so often with the democratic mindset. And because we're, because we're in a democracy, we have this view of the Bible that majorities rule. And we read it into sometimes our events, and we read it into our, our gatherings. And how many of you know it's always awesome when we can gather, you know, 20,000 people at the call, or a million people at Washington, D.C.? How many of you are for that? We certainly are. We just sent... I don't know, 150 people to the call. So please don't, please don't relegate what I'm saying to the fact that we don't like to p- large prayer gatherings or anything like that. But please realize that large prayer gatherings don't change God's mind. God isn't, God isn't, a, uh, he doesn't have a democratic government. He's a theo- he has a theocracy, and so we have this idea like if we can get a million people in Washington D.C., then God will look and he'll go, okay, let's see. Just one more person and God doesn't think like that. God said send me a man. Give me a person. Are you with me? And, and, you know, it's awesome when we gather together, not for the sake so much of history, but for the sake of the people who gather, because God gets a chance to talk to them and touch them. As, and how many of you know there is a greater anointing as we gather in, in, in a prayer agreement like that? But how many of you know that movements do not define men? Men define movements. I'm not talking about the gender of men. I'm talking about mankind. That somebody decides to step out of a crowd and that person oftentimes changes history. (laughs) Are you all right? And sometimes what happens is, is that we get overwhelmed by the problem. We, we become a part of the crowd, and what happens in a crowd, what they discovered in a crowd, is everybody thinks everyone else is going to do something, and ultimately nobody does. What they, what they found out with those 38 people who watched that woman get murdered is that everyone, else, everyone thought everyone else called, and ultimately not, the police received no phone calls. And he goes on to. to, do, uh, to do uh, discover in his, in his book, and I think it's a great book. I really do believe that everyone should read this book because it, it really talks about how individuals create tipping points. He talked about how, how crowds never create tipping points because everyone thinks that everyone else is supposed to do something. And whenever you're a part of a crowd, no one ultimately takes responsibility because they, they can give the responsibility to the people around them. And I just want to tell you that I believe that we're in this place where God's calling us to create a tipping point. In, in um, the book of Daniel, and you know the story well, so I'll just tell you, just repeat it to you. Daniel, um, Nebuchadnezzar, goes into Jerusalem, into Israel. He destroys uh, Jerusalem. He tears, down, uh, he tears down the temple, and he takes four boys captive. It's kind of funny because Nebuchadnezzar thinks that he's captivated, that he's captured four boys. But what he doesn't realize is that those four boys have actually captured Babylon. And little by little and piece by piece, systematically and prayerfully, they begin to dismantle the Babylonian system. From the inside out, they begin to wall by wall, brick by brick, they begin to tear down the Babylonian system from the inside. And so Nebuchadnezzar thinks he has four boys, but God has actually captured Nebuchadnezzar. And although Babylon they couldn't although Israel could not beat Babylon in a battle, he beats them from the inside out. Yeah. Later on, the Persian nation, the Persian Persian king comes in and captures Babylon. The Babylonian king. The Persian king comes in and captures Babylon and so now persia is reigning over ba- the babylonians but only one problem they forgot about daniel Daniel's still alive and he begins and daniel begins to again have favor with another king and another kingdom and little by little through through wisdom through intelligence through prophetic declarations through dream interpretation he little by little begins to demolish and dismantle the Persian government until finally Cyrus lets Daniel and all of the people go back and rebuild the temple and get this and pays for all of it to the estimated amount of about 70 billion dollars. Pays for all of it out of his own treasury. What happened? Four boys changed history. What a, what, a, what a nation's army could not do, four boys did from the inside, piece by piece, little by little, prayer by prayer, prophecy by prophecy, they began to dismantle the enemy's camp from the inside. I really, that's my whole message. <laughs> <laughs> <It> actually, is <laughs> just have some ha- examples. <laughs> That's about it, right there. You heard the whole thing. In Jeremiah chapter five, God, you know this Jeremiah, he's living in the old covenant, and people and is, you know, the Israelites are not serving God. You know the whole story. Jeremiah is always crying about stuff, and God says to Jeremiah, "Listen to this." Rome to and fro, verse 1, through the streets of Jerusalem. Look now and take note and seek in her open squares and see if you can find a man. If there's anyone who's just justice, if there's anyone who seeks truth, then I will pardon her. Find me a person. Find me somebody. He didn't say, see if you can get a whole bunch of people together and we'll just start a person. Listen, that's all great. I'm not against that. All I'm, all I'm saying is, is that I'm going to preach an unbalanced message tonight. You can make a difference. You alone. You, one person. Whoever you are. I don't know. You, I'm too old to It doesn't matter who you are. Jeremiah, go through the streets. Find me somebody. A person. I didn't say, find me a young person. Find me a smart person. Go to the university. Find me an old person. Find me an experience. You just said, find me somebody. Just find me somebody. It didn't say a man. He said a person. Now, that's a good word right there. There's a lot of people trying to be the best in the world. I think God wants us to call... He's called us to be the best for the world. There's a lot of people trying to be... Well, I just want to be the greatest. I think that something changes when you want them to be the greatest. Like when you want... To be known for making other people's famous, something shifts inside of you. There's something about caring about other people to the place where you'll give yourself for it. the God goes, I think I can. I think I, I like that guy right there. You know, um, Bill, and uh, in fact, both of us actually have been talking a lot about judgment, prophetic words, because we've been in this season where you know, please don't help us anymore. We live in California. <laughs> I hate that crap. It drives me nuts. I mean, we don't prophesy against your state. Leave us alone, you know. (laughs) We don't need any more of your prophetic help. Thank you. (laughs) Dude, now I forgot what I was going to say. That was good enough, though, right there. Actually, I did. I forgot what I was going to say about that. It was really profound, though. It got my spirit excited. You know, we've been dealing with judgment words. This is the only part I remember. <laughs> Whatever. Oh, I know, I know what I was going to say.) <laughs> You know what, well, I just gotta be honest with you. That's why we have name badges in conferences and not little bands. Because sometimes we forget our name. We get so whatever. I wanna say intoxicated, but in my case it may not be, it just maybe some kind of a brain burp. I was thinking about how in Exodus thirty two, you know, this is we've talked about this lot where God in the old covenant He says to Moses, you know what? These people whom you've led out of Egypt, in fact, maybe we should just read it so that someone will at least think we read the Bible. This is being streamed. Hi, Mom. (laughs) Whatever. Verse um, 9. The Lord said to Moses, I've seen this people, and behold, they are an obstinate people. Now then, let me alone, that my anger may burn against them and that I may destroy them, and I will make you a niche, great nation. I think I missed a good part, though. <laughs> Verse 7 is what I want. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, Go down at once for your people. Yeah, there it is. Your people whom you brought out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They had quickly turned aside from the way which I commanded them. They had made for themselves molten caps and so on. The Lord said to Moses, I've seen this people. Behold, they're an obstinate people. Now then, let me alone that my anger may burn against them, that I may destroy them, and I will make you a great nation. And Moses entreated the Lord as God. And he said, O Lord, why does your anger burn against your people, whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with your great power and your mighty hand? <laughs> why should the Egyptians speak, saying, with evil intent, he brought them out to kill them in the mountains, to destroy them from the face of the earth. Turn your burning anger and change your mind about doing harm to your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, your servants, to whom you swore by yourself. You said, I'll make, I will multiply your descendants as the stars of the heavens and all, the, and all this land which I've spoken. I will give their descendants for inheritance forever. So the Lord changed his mind about the harm that he would do with his people and uh, you know this is what i love you know i i we we're talking about judgment words and uh, even in the old covenant god god where god did judge people with you know prophetic judgment i mean the whole old testament story is about you know the moral of the old testament story is that sinners need a savior and they deserve judgment without a savior and how many know when jesus came he fulfilled. He fulfilled the law so that we could receive mercy instead of judgment. But what I love about this is that God comes to Moses and He says, See these people, these, these are your, these people, your people who you've let out of Egypt. I love this story because I'm thinking, you know, Moses is walking along, minding his own business, and he sees a bush, which he probably wishes he'd never stop. <laughs> and he turns aside and the bush says to him, um, says, Moses, my, M- Moses, and he's like... Say, so, yeah, I've seen the oppression of my people. I'm going to send you to my... You know, this is not exactly what he said, but it's something close to that. Uh, and so he starts telling Moses that he's, he's seen the oppression of, of his people, and then he's going to send Moses. And Moses is all like, um, well, who should I say sent me? I mean, it'd be really difficult to say, like, I was talking to a bush... <laughs> it wasn't George, and he says, "He said, he said, you better let his people go, or he's gonna burn you up." And God goes, "I'm gonna send you." And Moses is all, I, "You know what? Well, I, I don't talk too good. I st- 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 stutter." <laughs> and God's all no you're gone he's like no i don't. and th- you know and then he gets here and God's all these are your people who you let out of egypt moses is all no 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 let's let's let's, let's get, get 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 this really c- c- clear <laughs> these are your 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 people who you let out of e- e- egypt <laughs> remember the b- b- bush <laughs> remember i said i d- don't speak it too too well <laughs> i'm sure it was something like that but what I love about this story is God says, I'm going to destroy these people and I'm going to make you a nation. And Moses begins to argue with God and say to God, these are your people whom you've let out of Egypt. And listen God. And he begins to talk to, people, to God about changing his mind. And one of the most profound verses, you know, in the Old, in the Old Testament is, and God changed his mind. And then in the 33rd 30, uh, 30 uh, chapter of Exodus, God comes back and He goes, You know what, Moses, you're right. I did, I did say that I would take the people into the, into the Promised Land. But I never said I would go with them. And I'm telling you, this is what's going to happen. I'm going to go with them on the way, and I'm going to get mad. I'm going to kill them on the way. So I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to send an angel and go with you. An angel will go with you. And Moses says to God, No, God, let me, just, let me just think through this with you. It's your presence that makes us different from every nation. If you don't go with us, we're not going. It makes this very clear. I'd rather be in the wilderness with you than the promised land with the angel. And God goes, Alright, I'm going. You're right, I'm going. Here's the point. Even when God, even when God decreed judgment in the Old Covenant... Leaders stood up and talked to God about judgment. And God said, I think I found myself a leader. And Abraham, God says, I'm going to destroy the city. Should I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? Since Abraham shall surely become a great mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Shouldn't, should I tell you about this? And he begins to talk, you know the story. He begins to talk to Abraham about Sodom and Sodom. And Abraham begins to negotiate with God like a good Jewish businessman should. And he gets God down to ten. I mean that in a positive way. And God says, I'm going to to destroy the city. And he begins to negotiate with God. And God says, I think I found myself a leader. One of the things I struggle with in, in the judgment words, of course, is the judgment words themselves. But I struggle with people who would even repeat a word like that. Instead of do what Old Testament leaders did. And have a good sit down talk with God. I was in San Francisco and this young lady, beautiful young lady, she had a judgment word. She said, she described the circumstances and how it had to be God and blue angels flew over and all this stuff. And she said, God gave her this judgment word. And I said, it doesn't bother me you got the judgment word. It bothers me that you didn't talk to God about not doing it because God was looking for a great leader. And what did he find? Did he find a great leader in you or did he find someone who wants to argue for a judgment word? I don't know if you got what I just said. Sometimes, I don't know if this is the way to say it, but I'll fix it later. Bill will. (laughs) Well, I'll say it this bad way first, and then I'll say it a better way. Because sometimes when God's speaking to you, He's not always trying to be right. Well, let me put it the way you can probably swallow it. Sometimes when God's prophesying to you, He's testing your heart rather than determining your destiny. I'll say it again. God, Moses came on me. (laughs) Sometimes when God prophesies to you, He's testing your heart rather than determining your destiny. The question is, do you know it? In First Samuel chapter 22, King Saul's in the cave, going to the bathroom, and he's trying to kill David. You know the story. He's been chasing David around for I don't know, seven years, ten years, fourteen years, some long period of time. He's trying to kill David, and somewhere along the line, we don't know where, because it's not it's not in the Bible. Only repeated by one of his men. He said this. He said when when Saul's in the cave, he doesn't know David and his men are in the cave. And one of his men said to to David, remember the word that you got, that I'm going to give your enemy into your hands. This is that. Kill this man. And David lets him live. He cuts off a piece of his garment, then he even feels bad about that. Remember that? And then in 2 Samuel, I mean, sorry, 1 Samuel chapter 24, I think it's 24, maybe 26, Saul is chasing David again. First Saul repents, and he's like, Oh, David, you're a greater man than I, and this crazy spirit leaves him, and then the crazy spirit comes back. You know, you probably have neighbors like that, huh? <laughs> Hopefully you're not living next to anybody who goes to church here anyway. So and so David, so David's being chased, and David's up on top of this mountain, and Saul's down in the valley with all the armies of Israel down there, and there, it's, it's nighttime, and they're, they're, they're laying down, they're asleep. And so David takes, I think it was Abishi, one of his warriors, and he goes, who's going with me? And I think it's Abishi. He says, I'll go with you. And David goes down there, and, and then it makes a statement. It says that they were all asleep by the Lord, that the Lord had put them all to sleep. The Lord had put the whole army to sleep. And there was a spear by Saul's head, stuck in the ground. And Abishai says to David, let me take this sword just once. I'll just thrust it through him once. (laughs) And he repeats the prophetic word that David got. Remember where the Lord said, I will give your enemies into your hands. Now listen, he's got a prophetic word and he's got a prophetic sign. It's the Lord who put him all to sleep. He's got the word of the Lord and he's got a sign from the Lord. The Lord put him all to sleep. And Abishai says, kill him. And David says, far be it from me that I should touch God's anointed. Sometimes when God prophesies to you, He's testing your heart rather than determining your destiny. Can God find a great leader in you? Uh, If you're anxious to give the prophetic declaration that's negative, God hasn't found a leader. He's still looking to and fro. It it troubles me that it's an issue. No, start over. It troubles me that judgment prophetic words are an issue in the new covenant at all. Because they weren't an issue to people who were called friends of God. It's not by chance that David, Abraham, and Moses are the three people in the old covenant called friends of God. All of them refused to kill God's anointed when they got prophetic declarations that God says, do what you want. And they said, God doesn't want me to kill this person. He's just testing my heart. Let me just go forward just with you just for a minute. And, and David, you know, later on, David, Absalom, David's son, usurps David's crown and takes over David's throne. And David's mighty men go with him. It says this of David's mighty men. One, is, one was as good as a thousand, and, and the, the greatest was, the least was as good as a thousand, and, and, and the greatest was as good as ten thousand. And so David, David teaches these men loyalty in that he would not touch a crazy yet anointed king. He had every right to do that. He had a prophetic word, he had a sign from God, but he said, I'll not do it. And, he, and it says, with great, with great restraint, he kept his men from killing Saul. And David said, God will deal with him. God will deal with him. At the end of David's life, in 1 Kings chapter 1, we're, we're not going to read it, but another one of David's men, I mean David's sons, usurped his authority, Ajaniah. And Ajaniah makes himself king. And it says that Ajaniah invited, in fact, I'll just turn there and read you just a piece of it because it's such a, a great story David was old verse 5 he was old he was sick they had to have a, a, a young girl lay next to him to keep him a war, to keep him warm verse 5 now adonijah the son of Haggith exalted himself, saying, I'll be king. So he prepared for himself chariots and horsemen and fifty men to run before him. And his father had never crossed him at any time by asking him, what have you done? And it was he who was very handsome. and He was born after Absalom. And he conferred with Joab and with Abar the priest and with Ajaniah, and, they, and they helped Ajaniah. But Zadok the priest, Benaiah, the son, uh, uh, Nathan the prophet, Shemaiah, Reiah, and the mighty men who belonged to David were not with Adjaniah. Verse 10. But he invited all these people to the party, but he did not invite Nathan the prophet, Benaiah, the mighty men and Solomon and his brother. And just let me just take it from there and say that Ajaniah proclaims himself king and has all the armies of Israel with him. He has Joab, the commander of all the armies of Israel. He has all. He has a whole bunch of David's cabinet with him and a whole bunch of David's officials with him. Most everybody's with him except for he doesn't have Nathan. He doesn't have Beniah, and he doesn't have the mighty men whom who who, who were David's. And all of a sudden, Nathan comes in to David and David's about to die. He's really old and says, do you know that Adjaniah has made himself king? And David says, and he said, did you not say that Solomon would be king in your place? And he said, yes. He says, take the mighty men, take Solomon, put him on my donkey, put the mighty men around him and take take Solomon to the throne. He's on the way to the throne. Solomon's on the donkey on the way to the throne with 600 mighty men around him. Remember, all the armies of Israel are with Ajaniah, Only 600 mighty men and Nathan and Benaiah and then one of the priests are with Solomon. And all of a sudden, the word gets out at the inauguration, inauguration speech. When Adjaniah is making his inauguration speech, they whisper to Adjaniah, uh, and, to, and to Joab, the commander, Solomon is heading for the throne. And the mighty men are with him. And Joab says, I'm getting out of here. <laughs> and he defects. He's like, I'm out of here. And the, and the armies of Israel are like, if he's leaving, we're leaving. How many of you know that the mighty men followed a loyal man? And they stayed loyal to David when they didn't have to. And 600 men changed the course of history. If those men, if David had killed Saul, I question whether or not 600 mighty men would have stayed with David when times were tough and popular opinion was with Ajaniah. And I wonder if if Israel would have ever had its golden years and Solomon's temple and all that we love About the book of Proverbs the 600 men stayed with a loyal king who refused even through a prophetic declaration and signs and wonders to kill another king because he said if God wants to deal with them he can deal with them and he found and God found a man after his heart and then he said this to David he said because of your you have a heart after me your kingdom will last into eternity i 'm concerned about people that get a judgment word i 'm not concerned that they get one i 'm concerned about what they do with it i 'm concerned that they 're still arguing that it 's the right thing to do and we 're in an unbetter covenant. I wonder if times if the Lord allows a judgment word just to see if He has a man, if he has a woman who can lead his people. I wonder if He allows at times prophetic judgments to come to a person in the sense that He says, I wonder if they'll, if they'll say God, if they'll cry out for mercy or if they'll cry out and repeat judgment. I wonder if times God's testing people's hearts to see if He can find another friend, another Abraham, another Moses, another David, somebody that He can entrust a nation to or many nations to or cities to. Huh. Um, Larry Randolph says uh, in the book of Genesis where Cain kills Abel. And God comes to Cain and he says, where's your brother? And he said, I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? What's the right answer to that? Yes. Yes. If he would have known that, he wouldn't have killed Abel in the first place. So he didn't understand question number one. Yes, you are responsible for other people besides yourself. And then God makes a statement. The blood of Abel's crying out from the ground. Larry Randolph said that he did a word study in the Hebrew in, the, in, the, in that Hebrew phrase, "The blood of Abel's cries out for me from the ground," and he said that it could actually be actually interpreted translated this way: the absence of Abel's gift is deafening to me. The absence of Abel's gift is deafening to me. Cain, what have you done? The absence. Of your brother 's gift is deafening to me. How many of you know that God He created you to change history? Each person in this room is a history maker it 's not some kind of encouraging hype it 's the truth. You were called to be somebody. you were called to be great i 'm going to tell you something. people that hung around Jesus, they all had the same problem, whether fisherman, a tax collector. Uh, uh, whatever, it didn't matter. When they hung around Jesus, they all got this idea that they were born to be great. You hang around Jesus and you start being under the illusion that you were born to be great. So great was the the power of Jesus' presence that people argued about which one would be the greatest. I was just reading, I've been going through the Gospels this, uh, in the last couple of months, and I was reading where Jesus said, one of you will betray me. One of you will betray me. And it says, after he said, one of you betrayed betray me, they started arguing about who was the greatest. In the context of, one of you will betray me. Well, it can't be me. I'm better than you. <laughs> no, you're not. Yes, I am. Well, have you, have you, <laughs> have you healed a lame man? Well, have you raised a dead man? Well, I've healed the blind. Oh, that guy only had one blind eye. <laughs> Can you imagine what their discussions like? Jesus said, like, "One of you betrayed me," and they're like, "Well, it can't be me. I'm great. I rock. I'm amazing." Something happens when you get in the presence of a king. You start feeling like you were born to be. To make history. Are you with me? I don't think Peter... It's never recorded that that James and John and Peter, the three fishermen, argued before they met Jesus about who's the greatest fisherman. Maybe they did. I just think... Doesn't it seem odd that 12 people all argue about who's... I mean, different personalities, passive people, aggressive people in between whatever personality types. I don't know any of that stuff. You, I don't think Jesus chose one personality type. But when you got around Jesus, it didn't matter if you were introverted, extroverted, deep personality ABC. Come on Danny, where did he go? He left. Can't even take this anymore. It did, there he is. It didn't matter if you hung around Jesus what personality type you were. If you hung around Jesus, there was something about the feeling that you were destined for something. You were destined to be more than a fisherman. You were destined, are you with me? Something happens when you get in the presence of the Lord. It's like, I was born to change history. I was born to create a tipping point. I was born to step out from the crowd. I was born to make that call. It's me. I was born for this. You can always tell the size of a person by the size of a problem it takes to discourage him. I was asking Paul, there's a famous quote in in, in one of John Maxwell's leadership books, and man, I I looked for it even on the internet, couldn't find it, but he was talking, I think it was a a great general, and he turned to one of his lieutenants and he said, little people have little problems, and big people have big problems. I fear we have little problems. I probably didn't get exactly right, but I'll, I'll try to get it right next time. He, he said to his, I think it was to his lieutenant, he said, a general, he said, little people have little problems, and big people have big problems. I fear we have little problems. How many of you have ever prayed to be a miracle worker, and then within six months, you needed one? <sighs> I'm serious. You go, God, I want to be great. God puts, Okay. How great do you want to be? I want to be really great. And then your opposition's nine foot six. And he's got an armor bearer in front of him. God goes, okay, take that one out. I'll get you another one. And you're like, God, wait, that's, uh, what's this about? It's about, you said you wanted to be great. You can kill this guy? You'll be great. How, how many of you know that David's... The, 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 The power you saw in David's public life was a manifestation of what was happening in his private days in the wilderness. He tells the king, I killed the lion, I killed the bear, and I'm about to kill this man. What was he doing? He was killing stuff. (laughs) When there was nobody around. He was learning to be king. Listen, what does a normal shepherd do when a lion attacks a sheep? He prays he only gets one. Not David. uh uh He's out in the wilderness and he sees a lion tick. A lion! A lion! He's 15. He sees a lion going after his sheep. I'd be running for cover. Not him. He said, I went after him. And I grabbed him. Just can you just picture that the lion's like, I can imagine the lions like, I don't think it's supposed to be like this. <laughs> Probably the line in the Wizard of Oz. Just a <laughs> he became a coward after that. Can you imagine if? Can you imagine if the lion the lion looks up and he sees this boy ran He's, like, oh, this is a bad day. This is a bad day. <laughs> and then a bear comes after us. I mean come on a bear You guys aren't even getting this There's no it's there's no there's no te- there's no streaming there's no television there's no nothing there's no one to watch his dad doesn't even like him I'm not even sure that that he was born Probably out of wedlock, he says in uh, Psalms 51. In in out of sin I was conceived. His dad doesn't even invite him to the party. This man, he says, I tells the king, I killed a lion, I killed a bear. You want to know how I did it? He came down after me, and I grabbed him by the beard, struck him with my hand. <laughs> Can you imagine Goliath? I mean, he's like, send me someone to fight me. And here comes, says he was ruddy. It means like good looking and. You know, here's this like, you know, William Wallace, nine foot six, rah, blood all over him. Send me a man. Here comes David. I believe I can whip you. I've been reading the Bible right here. <laughs> the guy goes, Goliath is like, come on, what are you, am I a dog? This is it? This is what you sent me? you got to be kidding. I'm sure the king's like, well, maybe he'll just eat David and calm down. There's something about somebody that hangs out with God. I don't mean you don't have bad days. Come on, everybody has bad days. But I mean, there's something about you hang out with God, you're like, I was born to kill giants. But before you ever kill giants first you have to you have to do stuff in secret. Stuff no one can see. When there's cameras not on, your mom's and dad's not there. There's something about what you do in secret. Before you can have a public victory, you got to have a private one. A lot of people are falling, a lot of leaders are falling. I mean, it just seems Oh, I guess it's always been like that at times. It's just, it's grieving. Some of them we know it's grieving. I'm just wondering, you know, are, are you having, I don't mean this is like one solution fits everyone, but I'm concerned about how many of these leaders that are falling had private victories. Some people are so gifted that they just get thrust into the limelight, but they haven't killed their lion. They haven't killed a bear. But they have such a sense of destiny, the crowd pushes them forward because they just need somebody. I'm concerned, you know. Bill and I have had these discussions over the years. I'm like, I'm concerned when someone's so gifted. We have these young warriors around here and and old ones and middle-aged ones and ancient ones. We just have them all ages. (laughs) I just, I just don't want to create a culture where someone gets to go after Goliath, but they haven't killed a lion or a bear. That's what I'm trying to say. And then how many of you know that after you fight, before you fight Goliath, you've got to always fight your brothers? Especially your big brother, Elam. He doesn't want you to kill a giant he's afraid of. You, can you imagine your kid brother... David's the eighth born, your kid brother. You're 39 days shivering and shaking because this big guy's after you, and your kid brother goes out there and kills him with a rock. You are not the happiest person in Israel. It was the women who were celebrating, it wasn't the men. How many know what I mean? Elam's like, David, go home with your few sheep. He's like, what'd I do? And by the way, what's the reward? Who's the woman? She rocks. (laughs) I like her. I'm going to throw me a rock. I'm going to tell you that giant killers always keep their eyes on the reward. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. People are like, oh, you know what? I don't care if God gives me a reward. I'll take it. Jesus endured the cross for a reward. He that comes to God must believe that He is, and that He what? That's right. A lot of times we, we lose sight of the reward, and that's why we lose courage. David says, who, what am I winning? Well, the, queen, the king's daughter. Michael? Yeah. Michael? Elam's like, shut up, David. Michael? She's amazing. I'll take her. I'll risk my life for her. I'm getting me a woman. Dude, this ain't E. Harmony. <laughs> And then he had to like go get a hundred foreskins. I've thought about some of my son-in-laws having to do that for my daughters. <laughs> Whatever. Anyway, you know that it's in the book. It's in the book. It's t- I could. I'll find it. It's in the book there. I bet the. The Philistines are like, oh, here he comes again. (laughs) Must be wedding day or something. (laughs) We are called to create tipping points. Come on. There's a black woman, you know. She gets on the bus. She gets on the bus. And there's a seat in the front and there's a seat in the back. And she says, you know what? And the man says, you know, you sit on the back of the bus. And she's like, you know what? I've been sitting on the back of the bus. And I'm just not going to sit there again. I just can't do it. I'm just not going to sit there. Name's Rosa Parks. I just can't ride in the back of this bus again. I'm just not going to do it. I was called to be great. I'm not going to sit on the back of the bus. I'm not a little Negro black woman. I'm I'm a daughter of the king. I am not sitting on the back of this bus. She got in the front seat and the driver said, If you don't sit in the back of the bus, I'm calling the cops. You'd call whoever you want, staying in this front seat. I was born to be in the front seat. Oh, that was a mistake. That driver calling, that, calling the cops was a mistake. He didn't realize that I wasn't a little Negro black woman. That was a daughter of the king. That woman created a tipping point that, that America won't forget. He messed with the wrong woman didn't know it. Are you with me? You were created to be a tipping point. Martin Luther King's beginning to preach against black oppression, but he refuses to be violent. People come around him and black men come around him and they say, there's no such thing as a nonviolent revolution. He says, you haven't seen one, but you will now. He's sitting in his front room with his wife and daughter. White supremacist KKK came in and blew up the front of his house. Thought they killed him. But out from the rubble, walks Martin Luther King. A businessman said, I'll give you a million dollars. I'll build you a church anywhere you want if you'll stop this movement. They're going to kill you and your family. They blew the front of this house off and when the walls fell down, it was just him and his daughter and his wife sitting there, no walls around them. They would have blown a little bit further, would have killed them all. A businessman offered him a million dollars to stop the civil rights movement right after that. He said, your family's going to die. He said, well, at least I have something worth dying for. <clears throat> and then the men who were around him, who were, who were violent, tried to convince him. Do you see Martin Luther? There's no such thing as a non-violent revolution. He said, watch me. And they tried to convince him to stand on the steps of his porch I'm preach a violent revolution and he refused to do it. In fact, he stood on his steps and forgave the men who did that to him What he do he created a tipping point He's a friend of God. How many are with me? There was two boys their father was a preacher and he was a friend of the US Head of the US patent department They're having dinner together and the two young boys are sitting there while the father and the patent head of the patent department is talking to their father and the patent department guy made this statement he said everything that can be invented will be invented and if men were supposed to fly God would have gave them wings those two young boys were called the Wright brothers and something happened in them when the the head of the patent department said men shouldn't fly they said yes they should In their first flight, I think it only went three, it went up seven, their first plane I think went up seven feet and seven feet high and went like 300 yards long and they said, we're going to fly and it crashed into the ground. But how many of you know that two young boys created a tipping point? They said, we can do, you can do what's never been done, (laughs) Excellence is the result of caring more than others think is wise. Risking more than others think is safe. Dreaming more than others think is practical. And expecting more than others think is possible. Let me read that to you one more time. It's not one of my quotes. It's a great one though. Excellence is the result of caring more than others think is wise. Risking more than others think is safe. Dreaming more than others think is practical. And expecting more than others think is possible. How many know that you've been called by His Excellency. You've been called into proclaim the Excellency of Him who's called you out of darkness. <laughs> you've not been called to do what others think is wise or practical or safe or possible. You've been called to do what's impossible, impractical, dangerous, and undoable. That's who you are. Don't clap. I'm not done. I know you're clapping because you want me to be done. I'm not done. Acts chapter 10. Now there was a man in Caesarea named Cornelius, verse 1, a centurion in what was called the Italian cohort, a devout man who feared God with all of his household and gave many alms to the Jewish people and prayed to God continually. About the ninth hour of the day, he clearly saw in a vision an angel of God who had just come in and said to him, Cornelius, and fixing his gaze on him and being much alarmed, he said, What is it, Lord? He said to him, Your prayers, your prayers and your alms, have ascended as a memorial before God. Uh, I don't know why his stories mess me up. Now dispatch some men to Joppa and send for a man named Simon, who is called Peter. He's staying at the tanner named Simon's house, who's also by the sea. An angel who was speaking to him left and summoned two of his servants, a devout soldier, who is his personal attendant, and after he explained everything to him, he sent him to Joppa, This man, this is centurion. He's not he's a Gentile the gentiles have yet to be touched it's just a jewish revival are you with me it's just a jewish revival and not only is it just a jewish revival but all the apostles are convinced it's supposed to be just a jewish revival they think they're not supposed to touch the gentiles and all of a sudden this man what did he do he created a tipping point this man this man this gentile man this unclean man this man who is he's 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 like the like a a black man in the 50s um, with a white man. He's like a, he's, you, you understand, he's like a Jew, a Gentile. He's like, he's not touchable. He's, he's not supposed to be preached to. But what happens? He creates a tipping point. How does he do it? Through his prayers and through his giving. He creates a monument in heaven. How many know that on earth, when God does stuff like in the Old Testament, like God would, he would... Uh, He'd part the Red Sea, and they would stack rocks. They'd build a monument, a memorial, something to remember. Uh, 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 It's kind of a talking point, if you will. It's a a conversation piece. And he says, listen, you put these stones up there, so when your sons see those stones, they say, Dad, what are those stones about? Then you can begin to tell them the story of how God, he parted the Red Sea, and how you went through on dry land, the, the Jordan River, and so on and so forth. And how many of you know that on earth that we develop monuments to remember the acts of God? But how many of you realize that in heaven, God creates monuments to remember the acts of men? My question is, do you have any monuments after you in heaven? Is there anything in heaven that's going up that's building some kind of a... I don't know, what is it? A statue of you or something where God looks out and He goes, Hey, have we done anything for that guy? Remember like the king in, the, in, uh, in, uh, in Mordecai's... Uh, in Esther, in Mordecai's life. Remember one day he can't sleep and Mordecai saved his life. And he all night long he can't sleep. And, and he, he, he calls Haman in. And he said, Hey, what should we do? Have we done anything for that guy who saved my life? You know, there's just monuments in heaven where you're, you're giving your prayers, your acts of faithfulness to God. Suddenly, there's just monuments being built. And one day, you don't know when the tipping point's going to come, like in the book of Revelation, where the prayers of the saints are growing into this bowl and finally... God looks over to the angel and says, Tip the bowl. I mean, you don't know when it's going to happen. But it's just, is it, was it the first prayer? Or was it the last prayer? Was it the last dollar you gave? Or was it the first one? Or who knows? Or maybe was it, was it all of them together that you did? Little things that you just did over a period of time where God finally just goes, That's it. The bowl's too heavy. Just tip it over on him and just bless him with all of it. Give him 30, 60, 100 full. Just make that. There's a leader I have right there. There's the guy I want to start the movement in the, in the Gentile nations right there. Cornelius, he's been giving. He's been praying. Go down there. Send my best. Send my best there. Send Peter to one guy right there and make sure that that we start a revival among the Gentiles. Are you doing anything to create monuments in heaven? Are you giving beyond reason? Or are you just doing what the crowd requires? You know, so many leaders. I know. I know the pressure. I I, I don't say this in an accusational way. I understand the pressure as well as probably as anyone. But so many leaders, they're not really leading the crowd at all. The crowd's leading them. You know, if you're afraid of the people you're leading, you're not leading them. They're leading you. And this is how you lead. I'm afraid of people like that. I know the pressure of it. Bill knows. We all know the pressure. I mean, not one leader. I mean, you don't get to be a leader by not loving people. Not God's people. But loving people and being afraid of them, two different things. Not one of us want to disappoint people when you love them. Come on. Every leader. Amen. There isn't anybody. I mean, I don't like enjoying disappointing people. Do you? Is there a leader in here? I don't want to disappoint God. I don't want to disappoint people. But how many know when you're doing the impossible, doing the unreasonable, when you're going beyond the boundaries where no one's ever gone before, how many know that the crowd is not going to be the one who tells you to go forward? The crowd is full of people that have watched the giant for thirty nine days. They don't want you to go kill that giant because misery loves company. And if you go kill that giant, you're going to take away their reason. For staying here for thirty nine days. Listen, as long as nobody kills them, then we all feel good about ourselves. How I many you know you can always feel good about yourself? Just depends on who you compare yourself to. The crowd compares itself to the rest of the crowd and feels great about itself. But then suddenly some wise guy breaks off from the crowd and kills the thing you've been afraid of for 39 days. And it's like, dang, I'm feeling bad. You know, do you know Jonathan, Bill just told a story the other day about Jonathan and his armor bearers. Great, you know. Um, how many of you heard that message that Bill shared? It's just a great message of encourage you know, right after Jonathan kills, you know, takes on those guys, the rest of the army wakes up, and they start going with him, which is a great story the way that Bill shared the story. It's just like, you know, any one of those guys, I mean, it's like the crowd doesn't, you know. And they're like, hey, why didn't you wake us up? They, they say to Jonathan, what the heck? You've been here for how many days? You've been sitting here for how many days doing nothing? Now, it's my fault I didn't wake you up. There's something about the crowd when it finds out that you've got a breakthrough that it can't stay back and do nothing because now it has something to compare itself to. Somebody that's doing the will of God. I don't know if you got that. The crowd can stay comfortable as long as no one breaks out and does what it thinks is impossible. Once, it does once somebody does something impossible, suddenly the crowd feels bad about itself and it's got to do something about it. That's why it creates a tipping point. Are you with me? I had a conversation with a friend of mine real recently. And he was, you know, he lives in another part of the country. He's a very wealthy man. and He was telling me, yeah, I don't like George Bush, you know. I don't really care if you like him or not, you know. Well, he started telling me he doesn't like George Bush. He thinks that his security policies are failed. Whatever. I just had a thought. I said to him, well, how many times have we been bombed? He said, I said, how many times have we been bombed since Georgia's security policies have failed? I bet seven years ago you would have thought this was a success. Someone's convinced you it's a failure. You know, the crowd just likes to talk about you can't take... They can't, they can't take it when somebody breaks out from the crowd and makes history. They just can't take it. They just have to find something wrong with them. I, listen, I'll just be totally honest with you. I love George Bush. I, I don't agree with every decision he made, but I don't agree with every decision I've made. Not only that, but it occurred to me, it's just occurred to me the other day, like, I may not have all the facts about the decisions he made. I mean, it's, I think the media gave me most of them, it gave me most of the inside story, I'm sure I know most of it. I'm sure I know enough to have made judgments about whether he made a good decision or not. But it was a mistake to go into Iraq and Afghanistan, of course, because. Well, what was the reason we went in there? I thought it was to keep our country safe. It was just a thought that we had in the beginning. But it's failed, you know, not working. Listen, the, the opinion of the crowd is not always logical. They get talking to one another and they can convince each they can convince each other of anything And then you know what happens if you're with the crowd you get convinced with them My friend goes well, I never thought of it like that No, yeah, well, you did seven years ago. That's why you gave him permission to do all that stuff And now that you're feeling nice and safe. You don't like the wiretapping. You don't like this You don't like that but seven years ago the day after the bombing you thought all that was a great idea Now you're nice and comfortable and you can think about like, yeah, we probably won't get attacked. I don't like any of the things you're doing. I guarantee you get attacked again with someone else in there. And if they change their policies, you'll be like, the approval rating of George Bush will go through the ceiling. You'll be like, he was so amazing. We didn't get attacked under him. Just a thought. Just a thought. The crowd just likes to talk about people. The greater you are, the more they like to talk about you. Just watch you in a fishbowl, waiting for you to do something wrong. You know why? Because they're they're feeling this inferiority complex. They were all fine till you did something awesome. You screwed it up for them. Now they have to. Now they have been faced with reality. Because how many know adversity always introduces a man to himself. It's time for us to create tipping points and stop waiting for the crowd. Listen, it's great to get a whole bunch of people together to do whatever this or do that, or gosh, if we could get the whole city together, you know. You know what's astonishing to me? I, like, I love unity. I love people getting along, especially my kids. They, they never totally got along all the time, but that's because of their mother's influence on them and stuff. <laughs> but they were brother and sister, you know. It's kind of funny you say, like, how did you guys get along? They go, like, brother and sister. And we all know what that means. It means there was some conflict, you know. People just, you know what I'm saying. It's just like, it's never totally perfect. No one has totally perfect children. No one has totally perfect plants unless they're plastic. No one has a totally perfect anything. Everyone thinks everyone else does, though. Everybody thinks that everybody else, everybody thinks, well, the reason why they became a great leader is because everything's fine for them. It's like you haven't read biographies of great leaders, if you believe that. Winston Churchill, I think he's a pretty good leader. Was. Changed History. Had depression so bad, he called it his black dog. Had days when he couldn't get out of bed. Historians say, well, we think Churchill was mentally ill. Well, whatever, a mentally ill person is doing a lot more than you writing about him. John F. Kennedy had a back disease. He never told anybody about it because he knew he wouldn't win the election if he did. He had back pain so bad they shot him up every day with painkillers. When he met with, with, with the Russian president, he was in so much pain, they said in the back of the car they had to give him a shot just to make it to the meeting. It's like there's no such thing as people who don't have problems. Well, Bill's perfect. Okay, so one. I mean, bury a man in the snow and take... Two-thirds of his men and give them no shoes. And take twenty-five percent of his people and have, have them have no ammunition and no equipment. And you have George Washington at Valley Forge. You know how the enemy found him? Because his men got more of his men died from frostbite than died from bullets because his men didn't have shoes. And the enemy followed them by a blood trail in the snow because the men's feet were bleeding and the congress decided that they wouldn't fund him they wouldn't fund George Washington they stopped his funding and so his men were starving to death so George got a bunch of of his soldiers together and he went town to town his own towns and surrounded the towns and said feed us or or you're going to die. And when the people found out that Congress weren't funding them, businessmen began to fund them individually. Multi-millionaires began to give to George Washington. I'm just saying, great leaders had problems. you got 48 reasons why you, you can't be a tipping point. Read history. All those people had problems. FDR got so mad one time about he's sitting in his wheelchair and he got so mad about his men telling him that something couldn't be done that he stood up. He stood up. They all went, no, he's paralyzed. He stood up on the table and held himself up. And I don't remember the famous quote exactly, but it went something like this. If I can do this, then we can do this. You don't want to find out you can do it when somebody else kills the giant Then you're sitting in the crowd with all the people who are talking about the low approval ratings. Well, you feed them with your uh-huh, uh-huh. Don't talk about my president. I don't like it. It makes me mad. Well, you know, he's got this problem. He's got that problem. I got problems too. And you know what? If someone will talk... To you, well, if someone talk to you bad about someone else? They'll talk about you to someone else bad. I figured that out. People who talk bad about people just talk bad about people. You're the next victim. When they start talking to me about my president, I'm like, I like him. That's the first thing I say. And They start telling me, well, you know, I don't really like George Bush. I say, I like him. I think he's a good man. It's like they never heard it before. I'm serious. They just stand there. I bet you, I've said it ten times in the last month. He would stand there stunned, like I found a man who likes George Bush. Yeah, you'll like him too. You'd just be ten years from now. I don't think we need to keep the opinions of the crowd. I think we need to tell the crowd what to think. (laughs) It's time that we started telling the crowd what God thinks. That's what I believe. I um, wrote in my book, I was going to read it to you, but I won't. You should buy it. It's a good book. I believe we're supposed to start a new moral revolution. Good. No, no, don't clap. Buy this book. Start a revolution. Galileo. He, he didn't invent the telescope, actually, but he improved it to the place where he proved with a whole bunch of other scientists. By the way, Galileo wasn't the first scientist to believe this, that the earth, the sun did not revolve around the earth, but the earth actually revolved around the sun. A whole bunch of scientists believed that. And Galileo, when, he, when they perfected the telescope, when he perfected the telescope, he proved it to be true. But he wasn't the first person. He wasn't the first scientist and probably wasn't even the smartest scientist. But he had this thing about him that he liked to stand against the crowd. And the Catholic Church at the time, which was the political force of their day, God bless the Catholic Church. That I'm not be careful when we talk about our mama. But the Catholic Church, they, they didn't like his new theory and they brought him in and they said listen if you keep sharing this theory we're going to we're going to arrest you we're going to try you as a heretic and Galileo couldn't shut up he kept talking so he spent the rest of his life on house arrest died on house arrest because he refused because he refused to be silent about the obvious and the observable. Since the days of the sonogram, what's obvious and observable, if you talk about, if you're a scientist and you talk about what's obvious and observable, you will be tried. But it's no longer the Catholic Church, but it's still religion. It's humanism this time. And the high priests are the media. And they don't have cathedrals that you have to go to. They come to you in your house. And you may not know this, but 98% of all science is funded by the government. Saying that a fetus is a child is economic suicide in our country. But I had a dream, and I saw Galileo come out of the grave. And the Lord said, I want you to start calling for the young Galileos, the scientists, who will will be expert witnesses in the highest courts of our land, and say, that is a baby, if I've ever seen one. The sonogram has made what's observable and infallible ridiculous to not believe that that's a baby. Before they had a telescope, there were scientists who mathematically proved that the earth revolved around the sun, but they couldn't observe it. When Galileo improved the telescope, he proved through observation what they already believed calculation. Before there was a sonogram, you couldn't prove through observation that that fetus felt pain and was a real live human being. But now it is ridiculous with the advent and invent of a sonogram to even make a statement that that is not a child. And that that child does not feel pain when they inject acid into the mother's womb to eat the baby alive. That that child does not feel pain. And we need the Galileos of our day. We need the people with the edge. Listen, we need scientists among our own people. We need people to get out of the pulpit and become scientists. And to be expert witnesses in the highest courts of our land. We need people who have had abortions and found out that they were told wrong stuff in the highest courts of our land to become attorneys and begin to use the law for us instead of against us. And begin to sue doctors that destroy life in the name of you didn't give me all the facts, you told me that was a blob, you never told me it was a baby. We need people to stand up and get away from the crowd and start thinking for themselves. We can change history. We've been called to leave our children a world and revival. People that went before us left us a land without slavery, a land with women's rights, a land without smallpox, a land with almost no polio, A land with almost no leprosy. Why are we going to leave our children? When David, as good as he was, he made a major mistake in his life. At the end of his life, he called Solomon into his bedroom the night that he died. And he gave Solomon a list of five men. And he said, these men shouldn't live. And he made Solomon clean up his mess. God bless David. He did a lot of great things. That's why I said, you know, I don't agree with everything George did. I don't agree with everything I did. Man after God's heart made some mistakes too. But here's one mistake that we don't want to make. We don't want to give our children our dirty laundry and say to them, we could not fix this. Here you go. Here's the five giants that need to be killed. Sorry. We gave our children abortion on, on our clock. It's on our watch. And we've got to fix it. Happened on our watch. We need to fix it on our watch. Yeah. AIDS happened on our watch. And we need to fix it on our watch. These are things that revival has to touch. It needs to touch all of society. And we need to say to human, a secular priest, you will not. <laughs> I don't know if you get what I'm saying. To say that a fetus is not a baby is intellectual suicide. Stupid. If scientists can't tell us that a fetus is a baby, what else are they hiding? That's what I want to know. If their presuppositions can't even figure out on a sonogram that that's a real child, what else are their presuppositions telling us? And if they want us to believe them, then Galileos need to stand up and start saying, that's a baby, that's a baby, that's a baby. Look, that's a baby. Look, this baby feels pain. Look, we can't take the life of these babies. And I guarantee you, it's not going to be very long before the Supreme Court, no matter who's in there, going to have to make a choice for a baby and not a fetus. We need to leave our children a world in revival. Would you stand, please? We're going to pray. You know, I've never ever said this before, but I believe that one of the Galileos of our day is in this room tonight. I don't know who it is. But when when I was preparing, I wrote that story down at the last second. I felt I was supposed to tell it. I believe that there's a scientist in this room. I don't know if you're a scientist yet or if God's put it in your heart. But I'd like to know who that is. I'd like you to raise your hand if God's called you. To become a scientist and to stand up in the highest courts of our land. There's a man right there. Is there anyone else? And maybe more than one. I want you to extend your hands to this man right here and everyone else like him. Father, in the name of Jesus, we pray for this man and we pray for this not just for him as a person, but we pray for the whole science community in the name of Jesus. And Lord, we pray that revival would hit the science community. How many know the science community is poised? For revival, because it says God's invisible attributes, His eternal power, His divine nature are clearly seen in what God made. They're the ones who find out what God made. Lord, we just release that Romans 1 to them right now in Jesus' name. That you take the veil off the scientists' eyes. They begin to have a Galileo spirit on them. They begin to stand up in the highest courts of our land. Lord, we pray for that in the name of Jesus. What's observable, what's obvious in Jesus' name. Lord, that they be some of the most respected. The, some of the most intelligent, some of the most brilliant, that the Einsteins of our day would be pro-life in the name of Jesus. That they'd begin to stand up and they'd begin to make declarations that that is a baby in the name of Jesus. Yeah, let's pray for AIDS right now. In Jesus' name, Lord, we pray right now that there would be a cure for AIDS. That'll be, and listen, don't get me none of that judgment for homosexual thing. I don't even want to hear that crap. Lord, in the name of Jesus, I pray that there would be a cure for AIDS like there was for smallpox. That we would drive it out before this generation's over, in Jesus' name. That we would drive AIDS from our planet. That it would be an old memory, like, like smallpox, like polio. In the name of Jesus, Lord, that you would break the power of that thing. That you would open up the eyes of science and medicine. Lord, that there would be cures. There would be worldwide cures for AIDS, in Jesus' name. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Jesus. Amen.